Welcome to The Cyber Cookie, your go-to podcast for everything cybersecurity. Whether you're a seasoned tech professional or you're just getting started on your journey of security, we've got something for you. Today, we're deep diving into the fascinating world of DLP. That's data loss prevention. We'll hear from an expert about the latest trends and threats, and we'll also share practical tips on safeguarding your personal and professional information. If you're hungry for knowledge, and ready to sink your teeth into the world of cybersecurity, you've come to the right place. Before we get started, a quick request. If you enjoy our podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you could give us a follow or subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. If you like what you hear, give us a thumbs up or a five-star rating. Your support goes a long way in helping us spread the word about digital security to a wider audience. Thank you for joining us today, and let's get started. John, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Super. Um, John, we'll, we'll dive straight in. That, that's how we do it on this podcast. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, your background and what you do? Yeah, I'm the in-country solutions engineer for Forcebind Cybersecurity. Um, we're obviously a vendor of cybersecurity solutions. Uh, I've been with them for two and a half years, but I've been in cybersecurity for over 20 years. Um, I previously worked for Symantec for quite some time. Um, and I've been, uh, yeah, I've been in IT probably from the age of 18, but cybersecurity probably from the early 20s onwards. Yeah, so, um, yeah, you're, 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 you're quite long established in cybersecurity by, by modern terms, I think. And what inspired you to get started in, in, in cybersecurity? Well, I suppose I fell into cybersecurity by accident. When I uh, completed the Leaving Certificate, I started off in a help desk role in IT for ACC Bank. And then I progressed from there to network um, administration. And then I progressed to cybersecurity by virtue of the fact that I, as I said earlier on, I was employed by Symantec and they are all things cybersecurity. And that's, that's essentially where I started off from that side of things. So uh, as a child growing up, were you, were you very technically minded? Were you taking, you know, your Nintendos apart or anything like that? Or? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had the original NES. I think I got that around 1990. After about three years when I had to blow dust out of it, and it was, it was on his last legs. I actually opened it up to see what it was all about. <laughs> I got my first PC when I was 15. Uh, and uh, I actually, within a year of getting that, I uh, managed to clock the processor. It was a 133 megahertz processor. And I clocked that to 150. And uh, yeah, so I was always uh, uh, playing with stuff that I probably shouldn't have. I didn't break anything, thankfully, but... Yeah. 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 I think that's why I work in, in sales and marketing is because anything I, I took apart, I could never kind of put back together again. <laughs> always had bits left over. Yeah. So uh, my, my eldest brother, he, he's, he's an engineer and he was able to do it. So um, yeah, no, I didn't follow his, in his footsteps. Um, so getting back to cybersecurity, um, what are you finding the most common trends out there uh, at the moment? Uh, I find that the organizations are still trying to deal with all of their different blind spots using different pine products and, uh, you know, bring them together uh, in, in a way that they will work in harmony. But uh, consolidation seems to be the biggest trend. Uh, either consolidation with what they have in terms of on-prem or consolidation uh, on the journey to the cloud, uh, the yeah. digital transformation. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a fact that, you know, over the years people have bought their bits of software and it's only now they're finding when they, when they have an inventory of all, all, all the software to put them all together that they, they've either got gaps or they've got overlaps and there might be, you know, uh, wasted resources there um, where, where they could put it to better use, you know. So I think I, I do agree with you there, consolidation piece. 
um, and then say which are which are which are client base. You know, what, what are the common challenges you're finding? You know, use cases for um, your software. I think with the with the pandemic that hit it, I, and I think we would have gone this direction anyway. But the, the the pandemic operated as a catalyst, I suppose, is able is being able to handle the, the remote workforce remote workforce or hybrid workforce, wherever way that may be, and then to ensure that you still got, uh, you know, a strong security posture, no matter where that person is operating from, that that is the biggest challenge. I mean, if we think of when the pandemic hit, one of the biggest, one of the biggest challenges an organization had was to ensure that they could handle the VPN connections yeah. for all of those people coming in to do their job. As soon as the pandemic has come to an end, organizations have then decided or realized, I suppose, that having a VPN connection just to access specific resources is not really a secure means to do it. You want to have some sort of privileged access management to ensure that uh, you give them what they need to do their job, but you control all of that. And a VPN connection is not really compatible with that. So I, that, that's the trend I'm seeing mm -hmm. uh, today. And John, if you were to sum up, you know, what Force Point can do, um, for our customers in a paragraph up, what would that be? Uh, SASE or Secure Service Edge, uh, depending on which way you want to go there. I'll just try and separate that for you for a moment. SASE is uh, a number of disciplines uh, com uh, converged together. Uh, SSE or Secure Service Edge is all of that, probably without the SD-WAN element uh, uh, assigned to that, if you like. Um, so Secure Service Edge is essentially what we're seeing where you, where the remote workforce, as I mentioned earlier on, is accessing all the resources they need to do, whether that's public cloud, private cloud, private applications, uh, and web content. All of that's accessed effectively over, or essentially over HTTPS. And uh, I find that's the challenge that organizations are trying to handle. But the one challenge that they're trying to layer in over that is to ensure that they're able to have uh, visibility and control of the data that's passing over that channel regardless of whether those users are accessing cloud apps, private apps, uh, web content. Yeah, no, I remember when we first met, Johnny came in to give us a talk on, on SASE uh, nearly a year ago now, I think, and um, I have to commend you that the, the way you described it was, was very easy to understand from a non-technical, from a technical point of view, was, was, people got it um, straight away. And I see SASE really as the, as, as the new frontier in cybersecurity where it's kind of doing um, everything that you need it to do from an access point of view um, from end to end. So I, th I think the future is bright for SASE. I, I think so. There will always be organizations that will require non-prem presence, particularly organizations that have critical infrastructure, uh, not just for IT, but for OT as well. But for the, for the large majority of organizations, ensuring that users, no matter where they are, can access the resources they need to yeah. um, in a secure manner. Mm -hmm. Is all compatible with SASE, so that's that's where I believe yeah. everywhere everyone will go. I think that I think that's paramount. So, John, the re the reason why you're here today is to talk about um, data loss prevention or, or DLP as it's known. Um, sometimes I've heard it being called data loss uh, protection, but yeah, prevention I think is the is is the, is the main term. Um, and I know that that force point have a lot of resources um, for that. Um, I know they have a. They have, a, they have a white paper, best practice white paper, which I'll link in the description as well. So just just to just to give you this anyway, so Force Points um, 
the fine DLP uh, data loss prevention uh, prevents sensitive information from being leaked, lost, misused, or accessed by unauthorized individuals. So I think that that's the definition that we'll go with today for our listeners. Um, and the reason why we're doing this blog today is on the back of the, the recent um, PSNI, uh, Police Force Northern Ireland uh, data breach uh, that, that's been in the newspapers the last couple of weeks. Well, there was two data breaches, but one in particular um, was around a, an Excel sheet that was, um, that was uploaded to a portal and then made available to the public and had all the, um, the officers' uh, information and name, uh, station address, um, grade, uh, etc., on that, and compromised. Um, I think ten ten thousand employees. Um, so, John, in in your mind, um, from a say an expert's point of view, DLP and the whole PSNI thing. Um, what, what is your what, what were your thoughts on that when you heard about the um, the breach? I thought the the biggest factor, and I actually posted on LinkedIn. The evening it actually broke, and I think the one factor that 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 I was aware of, of course, but I just felt was important to find out is a lot of people or a lot of organisations feel that you know, in terms of the, in in the context of DLP or data loss prevention, um, you're you're trying to prevent uh, you know the malicious the malicious loss of information out of your organisation in an unauthorised fashion. And what that article and that that breaking news that even showed was is that data loss is also. Uh, occurs through accidental loss and I just thought that was really worth uh, highlighting it's you know organisations feel that the security posture is so strong that you can prevent data leaving their organisation unauthorised but what if somebody who's authorised does it by accident where's the belt and braces for that where's the protections to ensure that a document that's marked confidential doesn't leave the organisation unless it gets signed off from somebody who is uh, you know at board level for example yeah I just thought that was really important yeah no no it really, really is from looking at the uh, Force Five resources, um, it seems that there's there's three use cases for for DLP, and you might go over each one for us. Yeah, that's no problem. I think it's important uh, before we go into the use cases. There's an interchangeable use of the term DLP now. Uh, DLP, of course, was always data loss prevention, um, but there's a new, there's a an emerging use of the same acronym, um, data life protection. And uh, I will go into that in a moment when we go through your use cases. But I think uh, anybody that's listening to this should take stock of the two different meanings because it's very important in the context of SASE. Okay. So the first use case there I see here is uh, malicious insiders. So, the... John, how does DLP stop malicious insiders? Well... It does it in a number of ways. With malicious insiders who are trying to leak information that's not, that's not authorized to leave, and it can happen through a number of methods, uh, you want to ensure that you've got uh, robust policies in place that detects the information that's leaving through the various channels uh, and to ensure that people who are not authorized to send that information out don't. Um, there's other uh, ways of doing it. I mean, I give you an example. A malicious uh, insider may try to leak out, let's say, 500 credit card numbers. Okay, that's straightforward. There'll be a rule in place that would stop that. No problem. What if you do a low and slow? What if you link out one credit card number mm-hmm. at a time over a period of time? Well, your policies can be created in such a way that they're watching out for the low and slow, that they're detecting it on a on a um, an incremental basis where you you find that this is happening on a regular basis, yeah. that you pull the shutters down. 
It's looking out for that credit card number, is it? Yeah, so you can use credit card is the easy way for yeah. me to actually give an example for people to understand. But of course, the, the type of data that's you know important in an organization goes well and well beyond that type of uh, uh, obvious sixteen string code. But 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 the point being that the policies are there set not just to stop something black and white. So here's a policy to watch out for pattern that it also blocks um, um, portions of that information coming out bit by bit as well. Yeah, yeah, and the. The, the one that always comes to mind with malicious insider is, you know, uh, somebody's in a sales role and, and they email themselves a customer list to Excel sheet, you know, before they switch jobs to someone else in the same industry, you know, they're bringing that customer list with them. So absolutely, that is something that can be. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's important to, to give you an example of that. I mean, you can create as many DLP policies and conversion together in a way that you're almost, you know, you, you, you find a really acceptable level of protection. For that malicious insider, there's also something, as it happens, we call it DUP, dynamic user protection. But essentially, that's where you um, apply more stringent policies to users based on um, the risk score. And that could be an automatic risk score or that could be, um, um, how would you say, a manually uh, configured uh, risk score. And I'll just explain that. If somebody turns around, uh, an employee turns around and gives her four-week notice, you can immediately change their risk score up to say 70 over 100 or 80 over 100 and quite simply the policies that would have ordinarily allowed them to do X, Y and Z will actually pull those uh, policies more stringent. Well, that's, that's like applying social engineering to... Uh, it's exactly to, Yeah, to your, your scoring. Very good. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a good example there. Um, the second use case is exfiltration or data exfiltration, uh, the act of transferring data f uh, from a device inside your network to an outside uh, destination and I think the one of the you know the examples that comes to mind is you know the uh, the busy employee who who decides to email something to their private account so they work uh, they can work on something when they go home. I think that's a kind of a common use case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've we've seen some very um, <clears throat> public examples over the years. I won't go into them in individually, but anybody that pays attention to the news will find examples of where people in senior positions have been sending copies of stuff themselves at home to do the work at home. Yeah. And then when you're trying to do an investigation, you're trying to find where that information is sitting and so on and so forth. But exfiltration of data, I mean, for, for, in simplistic terms, you think of all the different uh, avenues in which I as a user would want to send something out of an organization for, for, for good or bad reasons. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can email it out over Gmail, I can... I can print a PDF, I can print a paper, yeah. I can send to a USB drive, mm -hmm. I can send to a spurious website, I could log into a tour party office 365 tenant, so on and so forth. There's so many avenues of which I can get information out of our organization. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the organizations that I deal with are looking to cover off all of those obvious um, avenues, but also some of those blind spots. So exfiltration of information is a very tough um, um, it's a very tough uh, task to complete um, for any organization that wants to protect their data. Yeah, yeah. Very good. I think um, it depends on the data being, being uh, exfiltrated as well. You, know, you might have intellectual property information, login credentials, financial account numbers, uh, PII, and other sensitive data as well. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very um, important uh, aspect of, of, of DLP. And then to move on to the, 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 the final use case, which, which is negligence, and it, it probably comes down to the, that's where the PSNI one uh, really was, but yeah. when, when somebody uploaded um, the information to the portal, 
um, that had the source uh, data within the spreadsheet um, or wherever they were using. Um, so you might give us a, a breakdown on, on, on negligence. Yeah, I think uh, we, we don't know the, the full details of what happened in the PSNI uh, situation. Uh, True. Two things we do know is that there was an example of an accidental loss of data and then a few days there, there was a, a report, again on the BBC, that back in June there was an example of data loss uh, on a more malicious basis. We don't know the ins and outs of what security protections were in place and so forth, but for anybody who was paying attention to, the, to, to, to those articles or the whole situation, uh, and we're looking into their own organisation to see if it's such a similar thing could happen, quite simply, if you have uh, an Excel spreadsheet that has sensitive information on it and it's uploaded to the cloud or it's shared out to an organisation, that's fine if somebody's authorized to do so. If you have correct data governance and data loss uh, policies in place to ensure that a document that's marked as, you know, um, confidential, that it cannot be sent over certain channels. So even if somebody who is authorized to handle that information sends something out to the cloud and publicly shares it out to a number of people, you know, you can have a simple policy in place that says confidential documents cannot be publicly shared. That's an example of a simple policy yeah. that ensures that somebody can't do something accidentally. i give you another example as well. Uh, I was involved in an amateur football club for over 20 years. And uh, the governing body uh, also had somebody working with the same name as myself. Uh, and you've probably seen it yourself when you're typing in somebody's name into the recipient section of an email. Yeah, yeah. And it auto-populates the name. But I, was, I was receiving mails at a time uh, to, to myself that were also destined to somebody with the same name and uh, it happened on a bit or similar John somebody else yeah I was able to give reassurance to those people that not only did he do it accidentally but I was also working for a cyber security organisation at the time so their information was safe and that I deleted it but it just goes to show people are paying attention they're busy in their day and they're typing in the name of the person they intend to send it to and not realise that it's going to somebody with the same name. Yeah, they got lucky it was going to you, John, yeah. and, and you've got obviously high ethics because you work in, you work in cyber security. Yeah. So that's, that, 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 that's a good one. But I suppose with the, the PSNI then, a couple of days later then, the news broke that a, a laptop got, had been taken from a police vehicle um, and that information had been compromised. Um, you know, in my head, I was like, you know, why isn't that laptop encrypted? Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. The one thing that jumped out at me over that, that is a lot of our organizations are working on the basis that, yes, people are using laptops for remote working, but they're accessing cloud-based uh, data, say OneDrive and so forth. Yes. So on one hand, you have to, you know, you have to authenticate. Um, you have to validate and authenticate to get into the laptop and get access to certain resources. I get that uh, from a cloud point of view. But if the data is sitting on the hard drive, A, I was surprised that that's still going on today. And B... For me, many years in cybersecurity and the organization I used to work for, endpoint encryption was something that was paramount for organizations. And endpoint encryption seems to have sort of disappeared off the, the landscape to an extent with organizations. They don't seem to uh, encrypt their laptops from a physical point of view, from a hard drive point of view. Mm. And I surprised that. On one hand, I was surprised. On the other hand, I could understand it. If an organization goes to a cloud for a strategy and the data is not sitting on that hard drive, okay, I could better understand the lack of encryption. But that that does sound on the face of it like a situation where the data was actually held yeah. quickly on that laptop. We don't know the the facts hundred percent. Of course, we're just we're just talking about the, the scenario. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um. So, John, from a from a 
DLP software point of view, you know, how, how does the, how does that tool work uh, within the IT environment? Straight off the bat, I'd say two things. Um, there's organizations that only want a DLP solution for compliance reasons. They want to tick a box to say, we've got something in place that protects data, mm-hmm. and they're happy enough with that. They don't want to, they don't want to uh, commit the resources and the, the education that's required to actually handle a solution like that. A DLP solution of itself cannot be installed and walked away from. Like other solutions, like an email solution, you can generally get it up to a certain level of configuration and everything works fine. A DLP solution must be attended to regularly. Why did I touch on on that side of things? Because if you're going to take data loss and data life protection seriously, not only do you have to pick a, you know, find a DLP solution, you also have to have a proper DLP strategy in place. And there's four main steps to it. First of all, you need to um, discover the data that you have. And all of the organizations just fail at that step straight off, straight off the bat. If you don't know where your data is or you don't know what data you have, you're not really going to protect it. And the second stage is classification. Having a classification um, policy or culture that A, mm. any of that information that you discover is then subsequently uh, classified, which is fine. And any new documents that are ordered are classified on, on the fly, whether they're confidential, public, uh, or just private or, or whatnot. Why is that important? Because if you classify all the data you discover and you classify all new documents that are created after the fact, you can then ensure that the policies you create prevent certain information going out where it's not supposed to go out. That seems straightforward enough, but that, I mean, if, you're, if an organization is not going to consider that side of things, they're really leaving themselves uh, wide open to a very, very expensive breach or a very expensive solution that's not going to do the job that they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Then you've got two stages from that. Um, the first stage is what we've called the monitoring stage where uh, you've got your policies configured as much in the spirit in which you want them to operate, you've got your you've got your discovery uh, you've got your discovery completed, you've got your classification completed, and then you want to just watch information for maybe maybe a month, maybe two months, maybe six months, and without enforcing any policies from a block point of view, you just say, "I want the organisation to keep operating as they always have done, and I want to learn from that from a from a compliance point of view to find out who is moving information around, what's the trends." What's leaving? How is it leaving? What challenges is it leaving? And then when you find that those policies are reporting that information to you, you can then say, okay, now it's time to start enforcing those policies from a, a warning point of view, from a prompting point of view, from a complete block point of view, or an acceptance or allowing point of view where you say, hey, you know, we're going to allow this true, but just keep in mind X, Y, and Z. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. I can see how it really fits into the risk management profile. Um, and it's all about reducing that risk. Um, and setting out your policies and your procedures then to back that up. So I can see where DLP has a home there. John, so data life uh, uh, prevention, um, you mentioned that that's now become the second um, use of the acronym as DLP. And do you want to just give us a, a quick overview of that? Yeah. I, I haven't seen data life protection being used in the in the main course of, of, of talking about this. Well, I use it all the time. And, and, and not that it's quite simple, but it'll make sense if I give a very simple uh, example of it. Okay, you've got information that's sitting on premises on your storage area, your network, your network drive and whatnot. And, and okay, you're, you're going to prevent that leader organization. I understand that. A lot of organizations are moving from on-prem storage to, say, OneDrive. Now, you can imagine a situation where OneDrive is effectively, it's a cloud SaaS application. You move your data out there and you've got a file that is 
um, confidential and you've shared it out publicly to joblogs at gmail.com. So as long as they have a link to that file, they can get access to that file. Yeah. So you've got a file that's sitting out in the cloud. It's not left your organization, but somebody's publicly shared it to somebody. Mm-hmm. But you never had a policy in the past that says that you couldn't do that. But today you've now got a policy that says a confidential document should not be shared out to anybody publicly. Mm-hmm. Data life protection is when you apply a policy in retrospect to say, hey, if the document is marked as confidential and it's shared out publicly, rescind all yeah, publications. Pull it back in. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, there is people who are in the industry, of course, know about this use case, but there's many people that don't. Yeah. That's, a, that's a prime example of where the data's already left your organization as such. It's sitting in OneDrive. It's a public SaaS application. Yeah, it's a risk out there, yeah. So you need data life protection. You need to protect the life of that file once it's in the cloud. Mm-hmm. And the, the way you do that, it, it's a combination of technologies, but essentially you're talking about CASB in, in addition, yeah. in conjunction with DLP. That's one of the modules within the, the Force.1. Yeah, but it's part of uh, the whole SASE uh, um, portfolio. Okay. Yeah. So, John, we're coming towards the end of our um, of our interview here. Um, I just I just want to know, are you seeing is it becoming more common now where where DLP is being implemented into into organisations and what what type of organisations are you seeing it being implemented? So, there's two parts of that question. It is uh, on the increase. I'd say it's probably the fastest growing um, point solution, if you like, for want of a better expression. DLP is now no longer something that organizations can just ignore as something that they can sort of avoid uh, dealing with. Why is that? A breach is costing them an awful lot of money. It's causing them reputational damage. And I see the the, the media coverage of some of the high-profile ones in the last few years, I think a lot of organizations are thinking to themselves, could have happened to us. And, And it's a piece of advice I give to anybody that's listening here and anybody that I speak to. I say every time you see something of a data breach and, and the basis of the data breach in the media, you should kick that around as an organization and ask yourselves, could that have happened to us? Mm-hmm. Could we have stopped that? If the answer is no, then they should be having a DLP conversation. What can they do to actually ensure that they can't be affected by the same thing? And in the PSNI example, it's quite simple. Could somebody have accidentally sent out... Um, a sensitive inf- piece of information by accident to a third party? If the answer is yes, well, then they've got a real problem on their hands. Yeah. Yeah. And then for any organization that, that is interested in finding out more about DLP and, and, and what Forcepoint could offer, um, what would you say to them? We are the industry leader in DLP, have been for, I think it's something like 15 years at this stage. Uh, at the very least, we can have a conversation, we can have a whiteboard session, uh, we can visit any organization in person and we can go through all of those individual steps because uh, it's worth actually speaking to us uh, at that level because it's not like your average point solution where you can just configure it to a point where it can almost operate uh, autonomously. DLP can do that, of course, to a point, but you know somebody needs to manage alerts, somebody yeah. needs to ensure that the policies are fine-tuned to ensure there's a lack of uh, false positives and so forth. But talk to us and uh, we will whiteboard it out and give you the options. There's, there's a number of ways you can actually attack, attack the use case you actually have. Yeah, it's different for all organizations. Yeah, the organizations I'm dealing with are financial organizations, the banks, the uh, uh, solicitors firms. Yeah, legal. We've seen medical organizations. Yeah. Legal are one of the kind of industry formulas for this. Um, 
because they don't want sensitive information, you know, like, like intellectual property or, or something like that being, being emailed to the wrong person. Yeah, and we've seen that in Hipster Cells. So, um, yeah, no, that's a very, very valuable offer, I think, John, um, for, for people to come and have a, have a whiteboard session with you and, and, and break down the use case um, bespoke for that organization. So that's, um, that's fantastic. So as I said earlier on in the interview, I will um, I'll link the resources in the description um, of the podcast so you can, you can, you can get in touch um, with ComSec or through to, uh, to Forceboy directly um, via, via this podcast. Um, so John, thanks, thanks very much for coming to us today and, and, and shedding some important light on a, a very interesting topic, a newsworthy topic as well. So um, we can wrap it up there. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me in today. It was great to talk to you. That's a wrap on today's episode, uh, all about DLP. We hope it helps you take the right steps in keeping your organization safe. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to like, follow, share, and subscribe. Your support helps us share vital insights with more listeners like you. Visit our website, that's comsec.ie, C-O-M-M-S-E-C, for more information on our products and services. You can get in touch by email, solutions at comsec.ie. Thanks again for tuning into the Cyber Cookie and as always, stay secure.